was asking my wife, um, what if you had all the symptoms of pregnancy? What if you went through those 40, 40 some odd weeks of being pregnant, but at the end of it, there was no baby? Not like the baby died, but like just like you had to experience that, that those symptoms and like you didn't get anything out of it, right? And without hesitation, right? She's like, that's the worst. <laughs> Worse than cancer, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but it's like, and the thought, the thought of that in her mind is just, because consider like what happens to a woman, and um, consider what happens to a woman in pregnancy, right? Because oftentimes like, I think dudes, we kind of just think about the end of pregnancy, like the baby coming out, you know? And like what happens down there when the baby, you know? And we're just like, oh God, but there's like, you have, to, you have to realize there's a, there's a human being in there and like all your organs are like up here now, right? They used to be here, not anymore, right? Um, <clears throat> not only that, I mean, my wife specifically, she dealt with all manner of nausea. Like some women have it, not, not that pregnancy's easy, but like, you know, it's like first six weeks, get the nausea, then it's done. But Esther went through a lot of nausea, even up to like almost the very end of both our babies. Um, and, you know, just, just constant aching, your back hurts, like everything's swollen, nothing fits, and you go through all of that, and if there's nothing at the end there, right, how, and, um, yeah, how, how futile does that feel? How meaningless, maybe, perhaps, right? Um, and we think that. And we, we think about that, we're like, well, obviously, obviously, if you go through pregnancy, you want the baby at the end, right? Obviously, if you went through all those symptoms, and it would, obviously, it would suck if there was no baby at the end, right? And we think, like, okay. Um, and yet, I think we as Christians, we may be specifically at Crossway, we live like people who are experiencing the symptoms of being pregnant, but there's no baby for us at the end. There's no baby. We're experiencing the futility, right? We're experiencing the suffering and the pain and the swollenness and, the, and as, how, as Paul describes it, the groaning of this life. But we don't give any thought, maybe there's a baby coming. <laughs> Maybe there's something after this. And all of our attention and all of our vision and all of our thinking and desire and passion and all of that is just focused on it hurts. It hurts. And that is not to say that the reality of our suffering and our pain is something we need to brush aside. No, not at all. Right? But we as Christians... We're living in this world, and in this creationist, and our, and our key passage today is verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We know along with creation, and we've been talking about how creation itself has a testimony, and it is attesting to the fact that something is not right, and something is not whole, and something is not yet complete and is testifying along with us 
So when I'm talking about creation and when Paul's talking about creation, he's talking about like what you think of when you think of creation, like mountains and trees and stars and skies and oceans. And all of this is attesting to the fact something's not complete. Something's not whole. And Paul here, he, um, he lays it out. Why is it that creation as well as us, why is our testimony that there's something not quite right? It's because there's a baby coming. <laughs> it's because there's a baby coming. And so let's break that down a little bit. Um, and my sermon today will have three points. The first two are very short, and the third might be kind of long. The first one is knowing. First one is, uh, second one is groaning. The third one is going. What are we knowing? How are we groaning? And where are we going? And Paul starts off verse 22, for we know. And this is, um, it's interesting the word that he uses here. There's two words for knowing. One, one, there's two Greek words for knowing that, that as far as I'm aware of. And I'm a Greek noob, so. Uh, but one of them deals with the knowledge that's like profound. Deals with the knowledge that's deep. Deals with the, no- the type of knowledge that probably you're like, oh, wow. Right? That's one knowledge. The second type of knowledge is kind of like, duh. Like, it's like obviously, right? It's generally accepted, common sense, like that kind of knowledge, right? Uh, and so Paul... Here, he actually uses that second word. The word he uses is not gnosko. The word he uses is oida. And this is the type of knowledge where it's just like, you know, if you showed someone this, you're like, hey, check this out, and you're, no one's impressed. Right? <laughs> no one's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. The word he uses is for, for, for we know is a generally accepted knowledge uh, as opposed to some kind of profound knowledge. So what Paul is saying here, Maybe I went too deep into a word study there, but look around you. It doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take a philosopher. It doesn't take a theologian. Like, I mean, everyone's a theologian, but it doesn't take, <laughs> doesn't take like a, a seminarian, a pastor to realize something's not right, right? The evidence of the pains and groanings of creation are very clearly perceived. Something's not right. Something's not whole. Something is not complete with the world. And how do we know that? Point number two. It's because of the groaning. <laughs> the groaning. The whole creation, all of it. The whole creation has been groaning together. Every single part and parcel of creation is unified in its groaning. Right? And groaning, why is it so obvious to us? Well, I mean, I feel like our church, we know this really well because we are really good at groaning. We are really good at complaining. <laughs> our church is really good at, like we're just really good at whining. And you know what? Whining, groaning, these pangs of pain, they don't happen silently and they don't happen privately, right? When, when you groan in pain, you're trying to let people know, right? Um, my, my wife is always roasting me because when I'm sick, I turn into like a, I just turn into a baby. Uh, I think this is, I think this happened after I got married because I'm just like, oh, someone could take care of me. So, so I, I'm just like, 
Oh, I'm sick. You know, I'll do that. I'll do one of those. Like, oh, I need some tea. Um, yeah, so be glad that she married me and you didn't marry me. But groaning, right? How do we know that the creation, how, how do we know that there's something's not right, right? How do we know that there's something wrong with our reality? It's because all of creation is groaning, right? And sometimes this groaning, um, I mean, just consider, I mean, just to take it into a little more, more sober topic, like, again, think about the earthquakes that have happened in Syria and Turkey, right? Is that not creation groaning? That there is something, even the gr- very ground that we walk on, something's not right. And, it, and this groaning sometimes, it, it, it expresses itself in just utter destruction and death. And this groaning is reflective of the groaning that happens in humanity, in our own hearts. That we groan when we, we groan in loneliness, or we groan in, in our depressions, or we groan in, our, in anxieties, we groan, and perhaps, I, I'm going to contradict myself here, but perhaps, yeah, we don't groan to one another, but inside our spirits are very loud and clear that something, even in us, is not right. And so we know the creation is in pain. How do we know that? Because the creation is groaning. But all of that is meant to show us where we are going. That's point number three. Because he says, Paul, in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, how? In the pains of childbirth. Typically, we categorize or characterize or describe pain by its source, right? We describe uh, you know, kick me in the shin. It's like, ow, that hurts. Why does it hurt? Because you kick me in the shin. Like the source of, uh, this is a terrible example, actually. But we typically characterize pain by its source, but the pangs of childbirth, it's special in a way because it's defined by its destination. I hope that makes sense. Um, The source of most pain is characterized by its source, but the pangs of childbirth, and I think the reason why Paul uses this specific metaphor is that the pangs of childbirth are defined by its destination. I mean, yeah, sure, there are things going on in your muscles and in your brain and in your chemical balances, but at the end of the day, why is that happening? Because there's a baby coming. There's a baby coming. And the pangs of childbirth remind us and remind the woman Something is going to happen. (laughs) Something's happening, and something's going to happen. And specifically, Paul uses the example of birth pangs, right? He doesn't talk about death pangs, because death pangs also point to a future happening, right? I don't know if you've ever watched someone die. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not fun. Um, You know, I, I was at my grandfather's bedside when he passed away. But kind of those last moments... Those last breaths that they take, right? It's pointing to a conclusion, right? And so death pangs in the same way share this destination-focused character. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about birth pangs. 
and the birth pangs are moving towards what? What is the baby that's coming, right? I keep saying this. The baby's coming. The baby's coming. It's moving closer towards the hope of glory that Paul has laid out in the past few verses. So let's read them together again, right? What is this baby? Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the birth pangs, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is the baby. It is the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says it again in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. I'm telling you, every pregnant woman is very eagerly longing for that baby to come out, okay? Waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. What is the glory that's to be revealed in us? It's the revealing of the sons of God. And so on in verse 20 and 21. That the creation is subjected to all this futility. Why? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's the baby. And these birth pangs and all the suffering that we experience, not that it defines it completely, but one of the things that defines your own suffering as you live out your Christian faith here, one of the defining characteristics of your pain of your, of your sorrows is that it is pointing towards that baby, the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. Continuing on, verse 22, together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until now. Um, let me read for you the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, which we are intimately familiar with because of our retreat. But let me recall it for you again. The author of Hebrews says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days. When Paul says (coughs) the Creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. The now that Paul is talking about is the same now that the author of Hebrews is talking about. That now is the last days. In these last days. Boys and girls, women and men and women, we are in the last trimester. We're in the last trimester. We are in these last days. And what is the implication of being in the last days? What is the implication of being, spiritually speaking, in the final trimester? As we are experiencing, as Christians, all sorts of suffering, all sorts of pain, maybe, maybe even persecution, and we know definitely that our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing increasing uh, amounts of persecution. What is that implication for us? Well, we know that our suffering. We know that the pain that we experience, and we know that the sin, though we are free from sin, we know that the remnant of sin remains. It is still a sign of the curse of our father, Adam. It's a sign of the curse of Adam. And it's a sign that indeed uh, we, have, we have sinned against the holy God. 
and all suffering in our hearts, in our communities, and in all of creation is a sign that what is not right ultimately is our standing before God. But in a more glorious way, having known that Jesus Christ on the cross has paid the penalty for that sin, knowing through the gospel, knowing through the narrative of the Bible and the story of Jesus, we know that indeed, though we were yet unrighteous, the righteousness of Christ covers us because of what he has done on the cross and because of what he has accomplished rising from the dead and leaving that tomb empty, knowing that in a more glorious way, our suffering, even though it might not seem like it, is a sign of the promise. So in one sense, our suffering is a sign of a curse, the curse that was placed upon Adam and all of his descendants. But in another sense, in a more glorious sense, our suffering is a sign of the promise. That aching you feel, the pain we experience, in a sense, in a way, it's showing us, hey, you know why things aren't right? Because Jesus is coming back. Because Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he will reveal to us not more pain, not more suffering, but he will reveal to us the glory of the sons of God and the sons who are adopted into the family of God because of the blood of Christ, that we are heirs to God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. The suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, and yet at the same time, the suffering of this present time points us to the glory that is to be revealed to us. How great it is, how great our suffering is, how great our pain is, how great our insecurities and our anxieties and all of these things. And we think about that and we think about how much greater the glories that are coming to us to be revealed to us. And so our identity as the children of God our identity as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, it means that our suffering, though painful, is not meaningless. We're not going through a pregnancy just for there to be no baby at the end. And we share in Christ's suffering. And what does it mean to share in Christ's suffering? It means that the cross, we, just as for Christ, the cross was not the end nor will the suffering of this present time be the end. In fact, the burial of Christ wasn't even the end. The resurrection is not even the end. Because we know that Jesus will come again in all of his glory to consummate the fullness of his glory that he reveals to us and in us as his church and as his bride. And this is the glory in which we share and partake. This age we live in is a pregnancy. And so the question I ask of you is, shall we wallow in a pregnancy of despair? Or will we rejoice in a pregnancy of hope? I realize I haven't really given you a lot of application in this sermon, so I'm just going to leave you with two. Right? And so 
if our, if our minds and if our sight is upon the birth, right, the, new, the birth that is coming, the baby that's coming, which is the glory of the children of God, right, it's going to affect how we, how we live as Christians, one way. Um, let's say you're into community service. Let's say you're into acts of mercy, right? And you, but if we're going around, let's say we're doing homeless outreach, right? And we're giving out food, we're giving out clothes, right? Uh, if there's no baby, if there's no glory at the end, they're going to eat the food, they're going to poop the food, and that's it. They're going to wear the clothes, and they're going to wear it out. There's going to be holes, and there's not going to be clothes anymore. And that's it. So you just do it again, right? You just do it until you die. But <coughs> if there is a baby, if the hope that we have is in the glory that is to be revealed in God's children, then the food that we give and the clothing that we donate, it's more than just food. It's a foretaste of the glory that is to come. You, you taste that? You feel the warmth of this? This is just a preview of the glories of God. <laughs> it is, and it's pointing us towards, even these acts of mercy, it's pointing towards that eternal, never-ending, everlasting glory that is going to be revealed to us. Another example. Sometimes we're studying. A lot of us are students, right? We're studying. And uh, I, I realize how lucky I am to be in seminary because I'm literally studying God. But not all of us are studying God, right? Some of us are studying, sure, math, right? I know what that is, math. And you look at that, and you're like, oh, uh, how does this glorify God? How does this glorify God? And you're, and you're going through the mund mundanity, mundanity? Anyway, you're going through it, and you're just, and you're like, how, what does this have to do with my, and you want to do something more like, more obviously glorifying to God, right? If that is your desire. And indeed, if we simply think in terms of this life and this age, then yeah, your studying has, honestly, has no meaning. It's mund completely mundane. You should stop doing it. Just drop out right now. But if the glory of God is real, the glory of God is true, if the glory of God is our ultimate hope, then we are not doing this just for this age, an age that will fade away, pass away, but our, even our studies, again, are a reflection of God's revelation and creation, but it's also a reflection of <coughs> God's eternal purposes. When we say we're doing this for the glory of God, we're doing, we're doing math for the glory of God, we're doing our readings. You do your readings, right? You guys do your readings? We're doing our readings for the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that we know that this is not the end. We know that this, even though it's not the end, it's included in the eternal grand story that God is telling for you and for all of creation. Anyway, let's pray. <laughs> For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now.
Father God, thank you so much that indeed we know that though there is so much suffering and pain in this world, and although we know that the root of this suffering and pain is indeed our sin and our rebellion against you, we also know that this suffering points us to a greater reality, points us to a glorious future in which not only are you coming back, but you will reveal the fullness of your glory to us and in us. And so, Father God, may we, may we consider that the things we do in this life are not just for this life. May we consider that maybe the trials and the tribulations that we experience are not simply for this season alone. But may we remember that all of these things are reflective of the glory that is to be revealed to us. That though our bodies and our souls and our minds and our relationships and our spirit aches, we know that you are a God who fulfills all of his promises. And we know that you have promised to us the revealing of the glory of the sons of God in us and to us and for us. And so, Father, would we not forget that? Would we not forget that we are not studying for this exam alone? studying for the glory of God. May we remember that we are not working for the next paycheck, but we are working for the glory of God. Even coming here on this Sunday, we are not gathering simply because it is the thing to do on Sundays, but we are gathering together to reflect on the glory of God together. So Father, would that, would that thought, would that truth invade our lives? live unto you because you have given your life for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us not just a part of yourself, but all of yourself. May we live to your glory. In Jesus' name.